Section 29 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, Malplaquet, Part 3. After about a month's siege, the citadel capitulated on the 3rd August, and this rich city, surrounded by peculiarly fertile country, and famous for its manufactures, fell into the hands of the Allies. It covered French Flanders, and so, from a military point of view, its possession was of great importance. Marlborough and Eugène next intended to besiege Mons, an important and strongly fortified town, which they knew to be poorly garrisoned and badly supplied with provisions. But to get at Mons, they had to force the fortified lines of the French, which reached from beyond Mons to the river Sambre, and if Villars once suspected their design, it would be very easy for him to make the lines impassable. The greatest secrecy and diligence had therefore to be observed. Walborough noted the weakest part of the enemy's lines, and sent at once a detachment of troops under the brave Prince of Hesse, who managed, by a rapid march, to take the enemy by surprise and invest Mons on the south before the French could prevent him. As soon as Villars guessed what the Allies meant to do, he broke up his camp behind the lines of Douai and marched to prevent the investment of Mons. But heavy rains impeded the movements of the infantry. The Prince of Hesse was before him and was soon followed by the rest of the Allies, and Villars' communication with Mons was cut off. He was determined to do all he could to save the place. The hostile armies were now close together, and constant skirmishes took place with varying success between their advanced parties. New courage was given to the French army by the arrival of Marshal Boufflet, the brave defender of Lille, in their camp on the 7th September 1709. Though senior to Villars in rank, he came at this moment of peril to his country to serve under him. His devotion roused the enthusiasm of the soldiers who were eagerly impatient to fight. Villars, in hopes of recovering communication with Mons and forcing the Allied army to move from its commanding position on the heights above the town, took up a strong position in an opening between two woods near a little village called Malplaquet, opposite to the Allies. The ground sloped away in front of his camp, and was intersected by numerous little streams with steep banks, so that his position was very difficult to attack, and he began at once to make it still stronger by throwing up fortifications. These fortifications were to be guarded by the infantry, whilst the cavalry was posted behind. The ground was cleared as far as possible of hedges and other obstacles, so as to enable the cavalry to act. The Allies were encamped below, at only a short distance, in full expectation of a battle. They were surprised at the rapidity with which Villars had fortified his position during the night, and Marlborough and Eugène decided, after much consultation with the other generals and the usual opposition from the Dutch deputies, that if the enemy did not attack them, they would attack. Marlborough wished to do so at once, before Villars had time to fortify his position further, but Eugène thought it wiser to wait till some of the troops which were still on their way from Tournay should join them. The day was therefore spent on making preparations for the attack on the morrow, and orders were sent 
to hasten the coming of the troops from Tournay. General Withers, who was some way behind the rest, was bidden not to join the general army, but to take up a position at a farm called La Folie, from whence he might attack the enemy's left, and perhaps turn their flank. The enemy were busy all day and through the night throwing up new works. On the next morning, the 11th of September, a thick mist hid the two armies from one another. Already at three o'clock divine service was performed in the camp of the Allies, and afterwards in the thick fog their heavy guns were moved forward. Up till the last the French were working at their entrenchments, but now they laid down their spades, took up their arms, and awaited the attack in their appointed positions. They were full of enthusiasm and greeted their general as he rode along the ranks with shouts of Vive le roi, vive le maréchal de Villars. At half-past seven the sun conquered the fog and the cannonade began. The Allied troops took up their several positions. They regarded the entrenchments of the French with contempt and disgust and exclaimed that they were again obliged to fight against moles. The first attack was made on the enemy's left and the troops encouraged by Prince Eugène tried to penetrate into the wood of Tenier, which was strongly defended by earthworks. Marlborough at the same time led the attack on the centre, and Withers advanced to attack the flank of the enemy's left from La Folie. The terrible fire of the French from behind their entrenchments beat back the Allies several times, but the gaps in the ranks were speedily filled up by their energetic leaders, and they were again led on to the attack. Half an hour after the battle had begun, the young Prince of Orange, without waiting any longer for orders, led on in person his detachment against the enemy's right. His imprudent valor had terrible results. The frightful storm of shot that greeted him mowed down his men and killed his horse, but he pressed on on foot and planted his colors on the entrenchment, calling his troops to follow him. The Dutch fought with desperate courage, but were again and again driven back. Two thousand men were said to have perished. Reinforcements were urgently demanded, and Marlborough and Eugène hurried to the spot to see with sadness the havoc wrought by the enemy's batteries. But the spirit of the Dutch did not fail, and the wounded men, after they had retired to have their wounds dressed, might be seen bravely returning to the fight. The Allies had gained little with all their losses. On the right, Eugène had only managed to advance to the other side of the wood of Teniers. He had been wounded behind the ear, but refused even to have his wound dressed, saying, If I am fated to die here, to what purpose can it be to dress the wound? If I survive, it will be time enough in the evening. Villar was wounded more severely below the knee. He too refused to leave the field and had himself carried in a chair till he fainted in agony of pain and had to be borne away. The moment for which Marlborough had prepared was now come. Though the Allies had not advanced much either on the right or the left, they had pressed the enemy so sorely that Villar on the left and Boufflet on the right had been obliged to draw all the infantry from the centre to enable them to resist the onward progress of their enemy. The French cavalry in the centre therefore stood exposed, and a cannonade was opened upon them from the Allies' batteries, followed by an impetuous cavalry charge 
led by the brave prince of Auvergne. They met the splendid French gendarmerie, thrice they charged, and thrice were driven back. Then they were reinforced by both Marlborough and Eugène with their cavalry, and this time the French could not resist their onset. The Prince of Orange, too, had taken advantage of this moment to renew his attack, and by a daring movement turned the flank of the enemy's right. It was now three in the afternoon, and the battle had lasted since eight in the morning. Boufflet, who since Villars had been carried away, held the supreme command, saw that further resistance was impossible. His centre was pierced, his right driven back from its entrenchments, and he was cut off from his left. With bitter sorrow he ordered a retreat, but it was no precipitate flight. The troops retreated slowly and in good order, and gradually reassembled at a camp between Quenois and Valenciennes. The Allies were too exhausted to think of pursuit, and encamped that night near the field of battle. They had won the victory, but at a frightful price. Their killed and wounded numbered over 18,000 men, amongst whom were a great many officers and generals. The French on their side lost about 14,000 men. There was indeed some ground for Villars' boast in his dispatch to the king. The enemy would have been annihilated by such another victory. As Bolingbroke wrote many years afterwards, a deluge of blood was spilled to dislodge them, for we did no more at Malplaquet. It may well be questioned whether dislodging the enemy from their position was worth this price, and it is probable that Marlborough would never have fought this battle but for the state of political parties in England. His letters home show little exultation over the victory. He was depressed at the time by a quarrel with the Duchess, who wished that he should remonstrate with the Queen for the way in which she treated her. Marlborough would not agree to do this, and the Duchess assailed him with bitter and violent reproaches. On the eve of the Battle of Malplaquet he wrote sadly to her, I can't hinder saying to you that though the fate of Europe, if these armies engage, may depend upon the good or bad success, yet your uneasiness gives me much greater trouble. On the 11th of September he adds a postscript, I am so tired that I have but strength enough to tell you that we have had this day a very bloody battle, the first part of the day we beat their foot, and afterwards their horse. God Almighty be praised, it is now in our power to have what peace we please, and I may be pretty well assured of never being in another battle, but that nor nothing in this world can make me happy if you are not kind. The number of wounded left on the field of battle was very great, the battle had been so fierce that little quarter was given, and the number of prisoners was small, most of these even were wounded. Marlborough learnt after the battle that numbers of the wounded French officers and soldiers had crept into the neighbouring houses or into the woods and were in a miserable condition. He therefore sent to Marshal Villars to beg that a French officer should be allowed to meet Cadogan to make arrangements for the sending of carts and wagons to take away the wounded French, on condition that they would not serve again unless English soldiers were given up in exchange. Some 3,000 wounded were rescued from a lingering death on the field of battle by the care of the Duke. His grief at the suffering which he saw, and the fatigue of the battle told upon his health, and for a few days he was seriously unwell. 
a report got about amongst the French that he had been killed in the battle, and this gave rise to a popular song, Malbrook s'en va ton guerre, which tells how the news of his death was taken home to his wife. As soon as possible after the battle, Mons was invested. Eugène directed the siege, whilst Marlborough with the covering army encamped at Havre. Convoys of artillery were safely received from Brussels. After some delay caused by violent rains, and on the 25th September, the trenches were opened and the attack began. The siege was carried on with vigor, and the danger of Mons made the French eager to do all they could to save it. But they dared not attack the covering army in its strong position, and on the 20th of October, Mons surrendered. After this success, Marlborough determined to settle his troops in winter quarters. The harvest had been very bad, and it was most difficult to get forage, so it was thought impossible to do anything more that campaign. The winter was coming on. The heavy rains and a good deal of sickness in the army made Marlborough reluctantly give up his hopes of besieging Maubeuge. But the capture of Lille, Mons, and Tournay gave entire security to the Spanish Netherlands. There was no need to fear another such surprise as that of Ghent and Bruges in the beginning of the last year. Besides this, the Allied army need not now depend upon forage from Holland. They could send their foraging parties into France to get what they could from the wretched peasantry, whose sufferings were terrible. Marlborough wrote to the Duchess, July 1709, The misery of all the poor people we see is such that one must be a brute not to pity them. He always enforced strict discipline among his soldiers and insisted on their paying for all they took. In Germany and Spain, the campaign of 1709 again was unproductive of any important results. But in Spain, the peace negotiations had produced a great impression. The Spaniards were disgusted to see the readiness which Louis XIV showed to divide their monarchy. They were indignant that there should be any question of taking from them a king whom they had learned to love. Neither can we wonder that Philip should be indignant at the idea that he might be called upon at the bidding of his grandfather to resign his kingdom. The Spaniards saw that they must depend more upon themselves and less upon Louis XIV, for France had enough to do to defend herself. Philip V, as he grew older, had shown more spirit and energy, and had succeeded in gaining the love of the Castilians and Andalusians. He declared that he would suffer anything, even death, rather than lay down his crown at the bidding of anyone. The grandees gathered around him with enthusiasm, and Charles could maintain himself only in Catalonia. End of section 29